Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. For those that tuned into our last episode featuring David Kaleda discussing all the intricacies of the new DOL fiduciary rule, thanks again for taking the time to join us today. For those that are new to our club, welcome. We are very glad to have you with us. All right, let's keep this masterclass rolling, starting with what's hot in the compliance world. The hot and compliance jokes really never go out of style. Nonetheless, this show's headlines will focus on multiple topics happening on the rulemaking front. First, let's discuss a recent proposal involving private issuers and raising capital. Earlier this month, the Securities and Exchange Commission voted to propose a new limited conditional exemption from broker registration requirements for, quote, finders who assist issuers with raising capital in in private markets from accredited investors. If adopted, the proposed exemption would permit natural persons to engage in certain limited activities involving accredited investors without registering with the commission as brokers. The purpose of the proposed exemption is to assist small businesses in raising capital and to provide regulatory clarity to investors, issuers, and the finders who assist them. Essentially, the proposal would create two classes of finders, Tier 1 finders and Tier 2 finders, that would be subject to conditions tailored to the scope of their respective activities. On the Tier 1 side, they would be limited to providing contact information of potential investors in connection with only a single capital-raising transaction by a single issuer in a 12-month period. A Tier 1 finder could not have any contact with a potential investor about the issuer itself. Tier 2 finders, on the other hand, could solicit investors on behalf of an issuer, but the solicitation-related activities would be limited to 1. Identifying, screening, and contacting potential investors. 2. Distributing issuer offering materials to investors. 3. Discussing issuer information included in any offering materials, provided that Tier 1 finder does not provide advice as to the valuation or advisability of the investment. And finally, four, arranging or participating in meetings with the issuer and investor. As you might expect, some of the same general principles are going to apply, particularly that you you can't generally solicit, potential investors must be accredited, there must be a written agreement in place, and the finder is not otherwise associated with a broker-dealer or subject to statutory disqualification. My firm does quite a bit of work in this space, and I can tell you anecdotally, this proposal is welcome news for many industry participants, and I do think it will help facilitate capital formation. Next, let's move to 13F filings. Back in July of this year, the SEC proposed amendments to Form 13F reporting requirements for all institutional investment managers. These proposed amendments would raise the reporting threshold for these entities from $100 million to $3.5 billion, help modernize its data reporting framework, and it would also update the instructions for confidential treatment requests. Recently, House Financial Services Committee Chair Maxine Waters urged the SEC to rescind these, quote, harmful proposed amendments. In her letter to the Commission, Ms. Waters urged the SEC to withdraw the proposed amendments based on the following. She talked about impairment of shareholder engagement. She talked about reducing transparency in the market information. And she also concluded that the proposed amendments represent an improper use of the SEC's exemptive authority. While I don't discount a healthy sense of skepticism for any rulemaking before it becomes the law, in this particular case, 
I would hope Representative Waters could explain why the information is so important and why no adjustment in the reporting threshold is appropriate 45 years after the statutory provision was adopted. I can also understand Ms. Waters' position that she wants to protect shareholders, but it would seem to me the bulk of the 13F reporting requirements fall on investors, not issuers, and it disadvantages some of them by forcing them to disclose their investment positions. If there's one area that seems ripe with opportunity to help advance the investment management industry, it's in the area of fintech and regtech. And with that, I can't tell you how excited I am to bring with us today Chuck Senator. Uh, Chuck is a board member and advisor to an assortment of fintech, regtech, and cryptocurrency companies. He's also the founder of the Boston Regtech Meetup. And in prior roles, <laughs> Chuck brings him with, with him a wealth of experience. He's served as the global chief compliance officer for Fidelity and for Merrill Lynch. He was the director of the Southeast region for the Securities and Exchange Commission. And he currently teaches a course on compliance and regulatory strategy at the University of Chicago, where he earned his JD. With that, I'm very excited to welcome Chuck. Chuck, welcome to the show. Patrick, great to be here. You know, what, one item I think that would be really helpful for our listeners who may have varying backgrounds in the fintech and regtech space, um, you know, it might be really beneficial just to give a little bit of background about kind of machine learning and AI um, and, and how, you know, the basic concepts can potentially help influence how different compliance officers and legal practitioners will actually approach their compliance program. Thanks, Patrick. Let me set it up like this. Clearly, there are very, very exciting developments with respect to issues like artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing. But at the end of the day, at the center of all that are what I would call sort of like a timeless concept involving things we've done for many, many years. Compliance officers and executives have relied on data for years. The real sea change is how we can harness more of it. Mm. So think about it. I mean, um, go back 20, 30 years, the data might include observation. It could include reading news reports. It could include internal reports such as surveillance reports. And a lot of that involves sort of manual processes that um, enabled us to kind of come to conclusions. That's what's really different now, what's different now is that these new technologies have supercharged mm -hmm. our ability to harness and gain insights from data. And so what that does is lead us down a road where things that might have been unthinkable in terms of trying to harness information and insights now become possible and refine our ability and improve our ability to add value, to see insights, and to sort of guide and uh, deal with compliance issues and regulatory issues and our obligation under the securities laws to supervise. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting concept. I'd love to dive into that a little bit. So when you talk about being, you know, we've essentially got a supercharger right on our hands and and our ability to use this new data and, and how we can leverage it. You know, what would be ways that you would say this machine learning, this AI and the more data that's out there? Um, how can we use that to help compliance officers? What, what are some ways that, that we could use that? 
Well, Patrick, let's sort of do a, uh, a thought experiment. I like and that. So, and so the thought experiment would be, imagine going back in time and thinking about, for example, the BSA and anti-money laundering. We're just going to kind of craft something just to kind of illustrate what the possibilities are. So we have obligations to know our customers. We have obligations to sort of look for issues where transactions might be deemed suspicious. Imagine for a moment being able to kind of, as opposed to maybe relying on isolated data points involving things like adverse media, or trying to get a sense as to what an individual might be doing or keeping track of how, whether their accounts are behaving consistently with what they said they would be doing. Mm-hmm. Imagine for a moment that you could actually pull in data from uh, all sorts of different sources. Let's say you've been able to, you could pull in instantly data from all the news reports in the world. Imagine that you could sort of mine social media to sort of see what people are saying and doing in terms of how they're handling their businesses. Just sort of making it up here and not trying to suggest we have some kind of a big brother type of situation, but just in concept. Sure. Imagine that if you were able to take those tons, there's tons of data that's out there, harness it and get insights from it with the assistance of technology, wouldn't that improve our ability to make better choices and have better judgments about whether uh, something is suspicious or not? whether we truly know our customers, because frankly, the ability to do that gives us more assurance because again, the more information that you have and the more and the greater ability you have to sort of harness it, the likelihood of error or missing something begins to be reduced. Right. It keeps going down. That's it. That's interesting. One, one kind of concept that comes to mind, especially hearing you talk about, supervision and how, again, we can leverage data to really help us with that particular aspect of our compliance programs. You know, I, I would think like email surveillance, like would that would that be an area where, again, using that data, being able to pull in a variety of new kind of uh, uh, new pieces of information might help with some of the aspects of, of email surveillance, I, you know. What a great example, because um... Email surveillance is one of those developments that kind of was part of the process where, frankly, we moved from a paper-based system when, at least in the broker-dealer context, a manager had to actually review a physical letter to um, trying to kind of figure out how to kind of harness Mm -hmm. and keep track of those communications and the ability to approve them and oversee them in an email space. And so then we ended up getting into these lexicon-based searches but I'm sure that anybody that's been in the compliance space that might be listening to this might agree with or have experienced the number of false positives right. is extraordinary. I think it's not overstating it that in many instances, the false positives could have been in excess of 95%. And so what, while it was great to collect the information, um, you ended up having to have all sorts of different levels of reviewers to try to call through what was false and what was true. So again, the more data and the more ability you have to have insight, one could conceivably think, for example, um, uh, natural language processing and similar concepts can uh, actually determine sentiment. Um, You might be able to sort of see patterns in terms of people's languages that might help you 
more easily recognize that something was a false positive. And to the extent that you can harness the technology to bring greater insight, the more ability you have to kind of avoid the wasted time of running down rat holes to determine yeah. whether something was a false positive or not, it would it end up increasing the ability to uh, do the oversight that was originally intended. That's that's a really smart comment. I mean, if there's one thing that I think compliance officers would one benefit from and two allow them to gain additional traction, right, with senior leadership in their firm, it's it's in getting more efficient <laughs> with the resources that we have, right, and being able to then apply those out across the compliance program, especially in areas like in email review, where we're doing compliance testing related tasks. It is interesting though, I mean, one of the things that, that, that you bring up sparks in my mind, this notion that, you know, from the SEC's, you know, from their perspective, the more the technology is out there for us to be able to harness some of this data and improve the way in which we're doing compliance testing and enhance uh, the information that's going into our risk analyses and the other things that we use to better our compliance programs. Is there an expectation, do you think, from the staff that we should be using this technology? That's a great question. Sort of segues into a, an analysis and a consideration of a fundamental tenet of the securities laws when it comes to broker-dealer, investment advisor kind of issues, and that is to supervise reasonably. And I think that it's a plausible argument that the notion of what is reasonable changes. Mm -hmm. and, and going back to uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago where manual processes may have been more accepted and paper-based types of uh, solutions were kind of common, as technological capabilities increase, and as those technology capabilities move and become more um, significant, I think that the concept of what's reasonable moves along with it. So to the extent, for example, that regulators, as they are now, when you think about the SEC, uh, one example is um, the OC program called NEAT, um, they're able to do a little bit more analysis and with, the, with the assistance of technology in terms of finding outliers that might be, for example, subject to a supervision. So the argument goes that if the regulators are actually in that space, imagine their view if you or anybody associated with the firm didn't even entertain trying to sort of have a capability like that. Right. And so, um, and so to me, the danger of falling behind includes a regulatory element because insofar as a reasonable system of supervision is a standard that governs ubiquitously across the securities industry, and that standard by definition will move based upon technological capability, it actually affects our regulatory obligations and exposure if we're not vigilant about progress in that area. Do you see anything in the, again, machine learning, AI, maybe even blockchain space you know, do you do you see that impacting future examination procedures? Let me sort of extrapolate on that. I think the answer is yes. 
here's a couple of interesting nuggets on that space in terms of examination. So just recently, although this is not a securities law development or a regulatory development per se, the Fed is doing some very, very interesting work. For those of you that uh, are not familiar or comfortable with blockchain, the way I like to think about it, because I like to make things simple, is that imagine you have a ledger that everybody can see at the same time. And so you have everyone in a particular network being able to sort of see in the same time, in real time, what everybody else can see. Mm -hmm. So one of the thoughts that the Fed is entertaining is creating something called a regulatory node. So what do I mean by that? So imagine that different players, in the Fed's case, banks, each of those banks ends up being a node on a network. And imagine, actually, you don't have to imagine, the Fed has the obligation to oversee the safety and soundness of those banks or nodes in the network. Mm -hmm. So the thought is that the regulator itself, in this case, the Fed, could also be a node on the network. And so to the extent that you have a blockchain that can have pieces of data from each of the nodes on the network or create a level of transparency that is available for other nodes to see, we could put aside for a moment whether some information may be proprietary and not included, but the concept would be that the regulator could see in real time what's going on in each of those banks in terms of their levels of liquidity, in terms of whether they are <clears throat> overweighted in things like uh, collateralized debt obligations going back to 2008. Sure, sure. And actually would suggest that that could augur in a future where examinations could basically be happening virtually, where a lot of that data, as opposed to, let's say, hypothetically sending all this stuff in to the regulators, it's already out there. And they can look at it and in real time give you feedback or make conclusions. It'd be a very, very different world if this sort of plays out. Chuck, this has been an incredible conversation. We are so thankful to have you to come on the show and, and talk about these concepts. You know, in summary, I, I think we could all definitely say that while you don't necessarily need to be, you know, a, a data scientist, having a working knowledge of this space and how you can best leverage data is really important, right? To help improve your compliance program and would certainly be, be very beneficial for any compliance officer. Chuck, thank you so much. My pleasure, Patrick. Our next installment in the series of final segments for the podcast is a feature we're calling History Has Your Back. Initially, when I was thinking of a title for this segment, I was hoping to throw some fantastic Michael J. Fox references in there, Maybe a good DeLorean joke or two, flex capacitors, how disappointed I am that we still don't have flying cars in the mainstream. Uh, okay, uh, I'll stop. But in the end, History Has Your Back felt like the best title because it represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future. In this first installment of History Has Your Back, we're going to look at the keynote address delivered four years ago this month by then Acting Director of OC Mark Wyatt at the National Society of Compliance Professionals 2016 National Conference in Washington, D.C. In his remarks, Mr. Wyatt didn't just foreshadow our discussion earlier on today's podcast, where we covered issues affecting fintech and regtech, 
but he also identified some of the key individuals in that area that would be shaping our industry today. Quote, As the financial industry has continued to grow in its use of big data and cutting-edge technology, so too has OSI. We have developed an impressive arsenal of data within the SEC, and various groups within OSI have been continually building the technological capabilities to utilize that data for both industry surveillance and examination work. This year, we consolidated these offices within our newly created Office of Risk and Strategy. My time as an examiner showed me that exam experience is critical in developing tools to leverage data in ways that drive OSI's four-pillar mission. Any new analytical tool designed to enhance productivity must justify its utility to the examiner during an exam. Pete Driscoll, a seasoned member of OC's senior staff, was chosen to lead ORS based on his leadership abilities and his experience in the IAIC exam program. Under this new office, we are integrating the work of our quants with our staff that has direct exam experience to develop tools to identify risks among our registrant populations both with, re with respect to registrants and the products and services they provide to investors. Pete and his team are meeting with risk teams from industry and other regulators to understand how others are monitoring and mitigating emerging risks in the marketplace. End quote. For those securities legal and compliance practitioners that have been living under a rock the last four years, that was m former OC director, Mark Wyatt, not only stressing the importance of fintech and regtech and the use of data during SEC exams, <clears throat> like Chuck did earlier, <clears throat> that was the acting OC director also naming the person heading up that big data initiative, Mr. Pete Driscoll, who is now the acting director of OC. So what does this history teach us and why is it important? Well, I think if you're looking to plant a flag in an area where you think the SEC is going to focus its resources, look no further than in the areas we've covered on the podcast today, fintech and regtech. How important is it to the SEC? Well, for starters, the person that used to run the Office of Risk and Strategy is now the acting director of the entire examination program. And furthermore, if you feel like maybe your compliance program has plateaued a little bit and you're looking for an area where you might be able to dramatically enhance the program inside your firm, look no further than the application of data to boost surveillance, better identify risks, and assimilate new insights to learn from past issues. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals. And I'd like to extend a huge thank you to our guest, Chuck Senator, for coming on today's show. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. You can listen and subscribe to the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to complianceincontextpodcast.com to listen and learn more. <laughs>